How many of you have watched the old-time movie Brigadoon? How many have never heard of it? Oh my goodness, got to watch it. It came on the other day on TV, and my wife said, oh, look at this. We haven't seen this for a while. We watched it again this last week, and a statement was made that struck me that's never struck me before, stricken before, struck me before, as I was preparing the message for today. Gene Kelly was playing in this particular rendition, played the part of a man by the name of Tommy, and he and his friend had gone off to do some pheasant hunting, and they happened upon what turned out to be an enchanted town of Brigadoon. Brigadoon only appeared one day a year because of some enchantment that had taken place a number of hundred years before. And that day they're out pheasant hunting happened to be that day. Well, Tommy was fascinated by Brigadoon and ends up with falling in love with a young lady by the name of Fiona. Near the end of the movie, there's a scene in which Tommy and his friend are sitting with Fiona and talking to the old village sage by the name of Mr. Lundee. And Tommy poses this question. Look, I'm not saying I believe all this. He was questioning the whole Brigadoon kind of thing. But just for argument's sake, suppose, suppose a stranger like, well, like, like me, came to Brigadoon and wanted to stay. Could I? And Mr. Lundy smiles as I, he could. Now listen carefully. A stranger could stay if he loved someone here. Not Brigadoon itself, mind, but someone in Brigadoon. Enough to be willing to give up everything to stay near that person. Which is only right because, after all, lad, if you love someone deeply enough, anything is possible. And I thought, oh my goodness. That's the same lesson that Jesus was trying to teach the rich young ruler. And it's the truth that we all need to understand about entering into the kingdom of heaven. I know a gentleman who, for most of his life, was quite satisfied with his life, how he was doing, finances, work, didn't really sense the need of, for God in his life. Oh, he, he, he attended church. He attended church with his family. And that was good enough. But at some point, he thought, you know, he should probably take the next step. And so he joined a discipleship class that was being offered in the church, being led by the pastor. And after the three or four week class, an invitation was given to, to them, those who were in the class, to accept Christ as their Savior. And, and the gentleman prayed the prayer. And the pastor assured him that now he was saved. Some time went by, and there didn't really seem to be any evidence of a changed heart. Years passed, and there was still no change. And he began blaming God for all the different misfortunes that happened in his life. And I had an opportunity to spend time with him one day at a sporting event, and he opened up just a little bit and told me that you know, he had prayed the prayer, but in his words, it just didn't take Today, he has rejected God completely. What happened? 
Why did it happen? I'm sure you know people who seem to have said the right words, but it just didn't take for some reason. And if you've struggled with that, with why that happens, I trust we're going to find some kind of answer here in the scripture passage that we're going to be looking at, which is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. And we'll look at those in just a moment. And what this story illustrates is a very concise and straightforward truth that we find in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Listen, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You see, salvation is not for people who just pray the prayer necessarily or people who think they may need Jesus Christ. It is for people who have come to the point in their life of being willing to give up everything for Christ. There's an abandonment of everything in genuine salvation. And Jesus illustrates this in our story this morning, found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Well, Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, there was a test for him. On the one hand, he had his possessions. On the other hand, there was Jesus. He had to make a choice, but because he was unwilling to give it all up, he never could become a disciple of Christ. That, in a nutshell, is the essential message of this passage. Now, you notice in verse 16 that the young man asks a question related to eternal life. He asks about how to obtain eternal life. That's the ultimate goal of all evangelists, isn't it? Trying to get somebody to the point of wanting eternal life. That's what John 3.16 is all about, right? That's why God sent His one and only Son, that uh, whoever believes in Him will have what? Eternal life. That's the ultimate goal. And we struggle, and we work, and we pray, and we study, and we strategize, and we plan, and we develop methods to try to get people to want eternal life. But here comes a young man who walks right up and asks Jesus that very question, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What good things do I have to do to earn it? Yes, his theology was wrong, but he had the right idea, the right desire. Now, I think my response may have been very simple. No, 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 you don't have to do anything. Just, just believe, just sign the card, just raise your hand, just walk the aisle. Pray the prayer. It's simple. It's easy. This guy has got to be the hottest evangelistic prospect in the Gospels so far. I mean, he was ready. He was ripe for the picking. 
But the amazing thing is he goes away without ever receiving eternal life. Why? Because he's not willing to give up everything. Now, Jesus actually sets up an insurmountable barrier for this man. Instead of taking him where he was and just getting him to make the decision, Jesus stops him dead in his tracks and and makes it impossible for him to get saved in the terms that he has decided that he wants to follow. You see, the man had already decided how he wanted to come to Jesus. Now you say, well, what kind of evangelism is that? Jesus would have flunked Evangelism 101 in seminary. He didn't know how to close the deal. He didn't know how to draw in the net. He didn't know how to sign the guy up, for goodness sake. I mean, you just don't let a guy like that go. But there's a truth in this text that we need to understand. Last Sunday, we, I, I ended the message by sharing with you how you can come to Christ. I share with you um, that the fact that you can be saved or rescued from eternal death and separation from God, and that was if you declare with your mouth what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The kicker in that verse is a statement if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that's what our passage today illustrates and kind of unfolds for us. So let's start with a a basic question. How does one obtain eternal life? Just like this young man in this story, you need to know what you're looking for before you go looking. This young man came to Jesus, no doubt having heard Jesus talk about it, and he wanted to know what good things he had to do in order to achieve that, to achieve his goal. He wanted this eternal life, and he knew he didn't have it. He had a lot of things, but he didn't have that. Matthew tells us in verse 20 that he was young, and then in verse 22 he tells us he was rich because he had great wealth. Luke tells us in chapter 18, verse 18, another telling of the story, that he was a ruler. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of ruler he was, but uh, most think that he was probably a ruler of the synagogue. That's usually the term that's used for a ruler. Um, And he was young, wealthy, prominent, influential, and therefore, no doubt, deemed wise. Probably even very spiritual in terms of his relationship with Judaism and all the regulations. And Matthew says in verse 16, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now the Greek actually says, And behold, a man came up to Jesus. There's an exclamation in there in the Greek text. It shows surprise on the part of the people who were watching. They were shocked. They couldn't believe their eyes when they saw this ruler, perhaps a ruler of a synagogue, a learned man who was influential and prominent, coming up to Jesus and admitting that he didn't have eternal life. This man seems to have been very spiritually sensitive because there must have been a restlessness in his soul. He sensed that something was missing in his life, a true connection with God. He was doing all the right things, but there was something missing. And he came to the conclusion that the thing that had to be missing was this eternal life that Jesus had been talking about. Now, I'm not a philosopher, but let's get philosophical just for a second anyway. What is life? Simply stated, life is ability to respond to your present environment. 
I mean, if you think about it, a dead person can't respond to their present environment very well, can they? What then is eternal life? Eternal life means ability to permanently respond to our environment. And what comes with eternal life is the divine environment, the, the whole realm, God, uh, the, the spiritual realm of God. In other words, we, we respond to the life of God. That's why when, when we're saved, Paul says that we enter into the heavenlies. We're not floating up there somewhere. Even while we're here, we're entering into that realm. What does that mean? Our citizenship takes on a divine character and we all of a sudden come alive with God, to God, and that's unending. Our spirit can now communicate with the Holy Spirit. What we experience then is a quality of existence, not just a quantity of existence. We often think of eternal life just for living forever in heaven, right? I mean, that's the first thing that usually pops into our minds. And that's true, but it's far more than that. It's the idea that I am now sensitive to God and I can respond to God. Before I was saved, I was dead in sin. The Apostle Paul tells us that very clearly. Utterly unresponsive to the divine environment, the divine realm. But when I became a Christian, I became capable of responding to uh, the, the spiritual realm, and I'll always be able to do it for all of eternity. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians ch- chapter 2 when he tells us that God made us alive in Christ. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Eternal life is the quality of being alive in God right now. A quality of possessing that life of God and of being aware of the environment of the divine. That's why we can have a relationship with him. There's an old song written by Merle Haggard, most of you would know it, called In the Garden. And the chorus goes, and he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That's eternal life now, which continues then for all of eternity. And that's what this young man wanted. So he had the right goal in mind. The second thing that's actually noticeable here is that not only did he know what he wanted, but it was something he felt he needed. Now I know people, and you probably do too, who know they don't have eternal life, but they don't really feel they need it either. I've heard people say, yeah, I'm probably going to go to hell for this, but I don't care. Or very flippantly, they say, ah, see you in hell. They certainly know they don't have eternal life, but they're really not interested in it. But the guy in our story here, he not only knew what he wanted, but he felt deeply about it. And I think there's an urgency in this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? There's no small talk here. There's, there's no conversation going on. He just comes right to the point. He, he's been thinking about this, and I believe it's probably been driving him crazy. And I think we get a sense of his frustration in, in, in his search in verse 20. He's done everything that he's supposed to do religiously. He's followed all the laws and all the rules, and his frustration, and he exclaims, what do I still lack? So we have a person who knows what he doesn't have. He wants it. And then is willing to seek Jesus. Now that's very important. 
Jeremiah 21, uh, excuse me, 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This man came seeking Jesus. How do we know that? Here in our text, Matthew just, it's interesting, Matthew just says, A man came up to Jesus. But the parallel passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says, A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was an urgency on his part, almost a desperation. He came seeking Jesus, seeking eternal life. But something we need to note here is, is that he is very, a very self-centered young man at this point. Everything is about him. He's got everything he needs, but there's still something that's not satisfying him, and so he wants to get that for himself as well. And even his questions are self-centered. What do I do to gain eternal life for myself? And You know, if, if you think back to the disciples, when Jesus called them and they began to follow Jesus, they were all about following Jesus, learning from Jesus. Their desires were much more God-centered. What did Jesus want them to do? How could they stay close and learn from Jesus? In our spiritual growth class, we've been studying, uh, as we've been talking about experiencing God, uh, we're looking at the concept of being self-centered versus God-centered. At this point, I believe the young man was very self-centered. He's coming for something that will satisfy his heart and the need in his heart. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's just incomplete. We're going to see that in just a second. But that was, his, uh, that was his approach, and there was an urgency, there was an eagerness, there was a genuine desire on his part. In fact, Matthew chapter 19, verse 15, tells us that after Jesus had blessed the little children, and we talked about this last, last Sunday, um, after he was done, he went on from there. He was in a home, he was blessing the kids and everything, and he left the home, and he was walking away, no doubt the crowd and his disciples still following him, people all around. And this young man comes running up to Jesus, pushing through the crowd, not caring or embarrassed that there's a lot of people there that probably recognize him as a ruler, not embarrassed that he's openly and publicly admitting that he doesn't have eternal life. Not only was there an urgency and eagerness on his part, but there seemed to be almost a desperation because Mark says he ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. He's humbling himself. That's not easy to do, even for us. But for a ruler, one that's supposed to be leading people to humble himself, fall on his knees before Jesus, with everybody standing around. The more I study this guy, there's something amazing about this man. He's serious. He's motivated. He's anxious. He wants eternal life so badly, so eagerly. He seeks it so diligently. He's even down on his knees begging and on top of all that, he came to the right source for it. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are looking for eternal life. They're looking for a meaning of life. Actually knowing that there's something out there. Something they're missing, but they're looking in all the wrong places. It's like the cartoon that I put in our newsletter uh, the other week. People are seeking everywhere except the true source. Why do you think Satan counterfeits religions all over the world? So that people will go chasing in the wrong direction. 
But this man came to the right source. First, in 1 John 5, 11, we read, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He is the source. And verse 20 says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus not only was a source of eternal life, He is eternal life. And so this guy came to the right source. Now, I think it would be a stretch for us to assume that he thought Jesus was the Messiah at that point, or that Jesus was divine, or that he was indeed the Son of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, he refers to Jesus as a good teacher. He recognized the goodness in Jesus. He recognized the power in his words, the power in his works. There was something special about this man, and his words rang true. So he comes to Jesus and he asks the right question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? The right question. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that there are good things or good works that we can do in order to obtain eternal life, in order to be saved. But in the context of this man's life, that's all he knew. His focus was on eternal life, not on the works. However, being raised in a pharisaical system of tradition, he was trained to think that you had to do things religiously to gain divine goals and, and, and divine ends. And so he comes and he asks a very proper question for his time and his understanding. But if you think about it, we do have to do something to be saved. Remember the question that Paul and Silas's jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And their answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's basically the same question this young man was asking Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, that's actually a quote from Mark chapter 10, the exact question. So it's a good question. And Jesus' answer is amazing. Listen, verse 17. Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now here's where Jesus starts digging into this man's life. He's making the man do some introspection, a possible leader of the synagogue, but certainly a man versed in Scripture and the laws of God. Jesus is asking him, why are you asking me? You know you know the only one who is good. He's already told you what good things you are to do. You should be doing them, keeping his commandments. If you want life, then keep the commandments. You know what they are? You think I'm going to change, change my mind or change, uh, God's going to change his mind? You don't need to ask me. Now you may be asking, why in the world does Jesus say that to this guy? Why, does he, why didn't he just say, believe in me and you'll be saved? Because there was something missing here and Jesus saw it. This man was seeking eternal life, yes, but he was seeking it to add it on to all the other good things that he had in his life. This was, one, this was more of an emotional felt need that he had. That's not, and that's not a good enough reason to come to Christ Again, feeling is a need as an, uh, feeling a need is not wrong, it's just incomplete. 
So Jesus tells them to keep all the commandments. Well, from our other studies, we know that it is physically and mentally impossible. Nobody can do that. And that's the point that Jesus was making here. He was trying to get this guy to realize that he couldn't do it on his own. That's what he wanted to do. And if you break, if, if you break God's commands, it's sin. And this man never mentions sin. Never mentions sin. There is no concept in his mind that he is a sinner and has therefore offended God. And that's a necessary element in understanding the truth of salvation. You see, we can't bring people to Christ simply and only on the basis of of people's lack of peace or a lack of joy or, or a lack of hope or a lack of happiness. They've got to understand that salvation is for people who want to turn away from the things of their life and turn towards God those who realize they've been living a life displeasing to God and and in actual rebellion against a holy God, and they want to turn around, they want to confess that and affirm their commitment to live for His glory. That's the true meaning of the word repentance. That's what Jesus preached, and that's what John the Baptist preached. Repent. And the gentleman that I mentioned that, uh, earlier that I talked with, he pretty much had everything that he already wanted, and now he wanted to add Jesus as well. I think that's where his problem was. You see, Jesus is not just an add-on. It's not an accessory that we can attach to our life. The rich young ruler had no sense of his offense towards God, no sense of his sinfulness. He had no remorse. And folks, there needs to be remorse. If we go back to the Beatitudes, remember our study back in chapter 5 of Matthew, we need to come to God as a beggar with nothing and begging for forgiveness. There needs to be a sense of meekness. There needs to be a sense of mourning, overwhelmed by our sin. This man didn't have that. And Jesus hits him right where he thinks he's the strongest. And he says, keep God's commandments. Now, I can imagine this young man pausing and thinking, okay, um, that's what I've been doing all my life. What am I missing? Uh, I don't get it. What's he talking about? And I think he's sincere in verse 18 when he asks, which ones? Which commandments are you talking about? And so Jesus responds by giving him the last half of the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and oh yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that the Ten Commandments are divided basically in two parts. The first half deal with God, you shall have no other God before me, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, and on, on those go. And the second half deal with man, the things that Jesus mentioned, don't murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, and you should honor your father and mother. You know, th- those are much more objective Aren't they? You can really kind of get your, get your mind wrapped around those. It's, I think it's fairly easy to think that we've accomplished the second half. You know, I, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never actually stolen from anybody. And we can begin thinking that we're, good, we're, we're pretty good people. So Jesus kind of throws out to him the easier half of the Ten Commandments and then adds a little one at the very end, just to make it a little bit more difficult, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's a question. 
Why did Jesus focus on the law? Keeping the commandments rather than grace. I mean, we're saved by grace, not by law, right? Wasn't Jesus the bringer of grace? Why is he talking about the law? But you know, Jesus was actually right. If you kept the whole law perfectly, without breaking even one, you would be saved and God would accept you into his kingdom. But what's the problem? We can't do it. It's absolutely impossible because of our sin nature, our natural, naturally rebellious nature that we are born with. If you break one law, you've broken the whole law, and God demands perfection. One author wrote, you can't preach grace until you preach law because nobody understands what grace means unless they understand what law requires. No one understands mercy unless they understand guilt. And so you cannot preach the gospel of grace unless you've preached a message of law. The Apostle Paul would say that a person must get to the point of understanding that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot bypass that aspect because then there is no repentance. So Jesus says to this rich young ruler, keep these commands. Now amazingly, the man responds in verse 20, all these I've kept. He said, what do I still lack? And the problem was that the Jews had gotten into this situation where they, they had so externalized the law that they saw everything on the outside and they never dealt with the inside. They never dealt with their heart. And that's where the problem lay. For Jesus has got to be about the heart. You remember uh, when Jesus preached back in Matthew chapter 5 and he said, you know, I, I know you think you, you don't murder, but you, when you hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart. I know you don't think you commit adultery, but when you look on a w- woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And when you divorce your husbands or wives without biblical grounds, you commit adultery as well. In other words, Jesus says to them all through Matthew 5, on the outside, you all look good. But on the inside, you've got all this vile evil. You see, the Ten Commandments were simply external pictures, external behavior patterns that were to indicate the heart that was right. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So this is not just a New Testament concept. Proverbs chapter 4, 23 says, Above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. But this man didn't understand that concept. In fact, neither did any of the Pharisees. Pretty soon, Jesus is going to lay into all the Pharisees in chapter 23, calling them whitewashed sepulchers. Well, this man was very content in his whitewashedness. He saw no wrong in his life. He couldn't admit or confess his sin. Listen, confession of sin, repentance, turning from sin is absolutely essential in salvation. This young man couldn't see it, and he says, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? What haven't I done? I've tried to do it all, and in my mind, I've I've done a pretty good job. I'm okay. 
I'm a good person. You know, it's easy for us to convince ourselves of that, isn't it? I'm not like my neighbor. I'm not like those horrible people that we see on the news that get caught for doing this and doing that and the other. But what we need to understand is that God doesn't compare us with others. Who does he compare us with? Himself. Be holy, for I am holy. In the light of God, in the light of his holiness, how good are we? That's where Jesus was trying to bring this rich young ruler. And the guy says, I've done everything right. What else is there? And listen to what Jesus says in verse 21 22. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. What just happened? Is Jesus saying that you have to give away everything you have to be a Christian? No. Do you have to live in poverty to be a follower of Christ? No. That would become an external effort on our part. What Jesus is saying is that we need to be willing to do whatever the Lord asks us to do. And it may be different in in different cases. And that comes back to the Lordship of Christ. You see, the man was very proud of himself for keeping all the commandments, but Jesus, by telling him to give up all his wealth, actually took him back to the very first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. The man's wealth was the most important thing to him. That had become his idol. That had become his god. And Jesus was saying, you think you've kept all the commandments, but you've blown the very first one, and therefore all the rest. And the man couldn't give it up. Here's a tough question for us. What is the most important thing in your life? Think about it just a second. What is the most important thing in your life? Your job? Your home? Your comfort? Your kids? Your grandchildren? Your family? Your wealth? Your retirement? Are you willing to give it all up? Is Jesus really Lord of your life? That takes us back to what Jesus said in Luke 14, 33. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Think about Jesus' 12 disciples. When Jesus said, come, follow me, they left everything. They left their livelihoods. In one case, in the case of Matthew the tax collector, he left his wealth. That's what Jesus expects. That's the response that Jesus wants. In Matthew 13, we looked at two two different parables. You'll remember them, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, talking about salvation. And in the first, the the man sold everything he had and bought the field to get that treasure. And in the second, the guy sold everything he had to get the money enough to buy that that precious pearl. All it cost was everything they had. 
To come to Jesus Christ, we have to say yes to Christ, which means he becomes a supreme Lord of our life, and he takes number one priority over everything. Now, I don't think people often understand the full implications of the Lordship of Christ, but salvation does involve a commitment to that. It's exactly what Romans 10.9 says when Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The man went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. Is it impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God? No. Not impossible, but really difficult because of the hold that wealth often has on a person. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to be talking about that very thing. As Jesus says in the very next verse, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19, he was a very wealthy tax collector, but his heart on the inside was changed. That's the difference. When Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home, it says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus got it. Zacchaeus understood the price. Zacchaeus was willing to pay that price. He was willing to give up his wealth for Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this home. Listen. Listen to this wonderful promise that God gives us when we come to Christ and make him Lord of our life. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That's life in the kingdom. That's eternal life starting now and continuing for all eternity. If you haven't made that decision, Don't linger over it. Do it today, a decision for Christ. But you need to want it. You need to be willing to give your life to Christ and allow him to be Lord of your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, we have made things so simple for people trying to draw people, trying to get people into the church, trying to save people. And unfortunately, I think oftentimes we, we're doing it with our own efforts, with our own gimmicks, with our own arguments, with our own, own conversations and our own questions. But Father, there, there's, there's a serious, serious decision that needs to be made. And a person needs to come to the point where they say, you know, I, I've been blowing it all my life. And if I am going to have true joy, if I'm going to have true peace, am I really going to be able to inherit the kingdom of heaven and and be with him in heaven for the rest of my life, I need to give myself up. And I am willing to do anything. And Father, I pray if there is one listening here this morning that has not made that decision, I pray that you would speak very powerfully to their, their hearts and that you would draw them and bring that conviction that only your Holy Spirit can bring. 
to the point where they say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that God raised him from the dead. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close this morning.